If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Then can a woman who makes books be let off the hook by the universe for not making the living thing we call babies? Yes. Oh, good. I feel so guilty about it sometimes, thinking it's what I should do, because I always think that animals are happiest when they live out their instincts. Maybe not happiest, but feel most alive. Yet making art makes me feel alive, and taking care of others doesn't make me feel as alive. Maybe I have to think about myself less as a woman with this woman's special task, and more as an individual with her own special task, not put woman before my individuality. Is that right? No. Is it that making babies is not a woman's special task? Yes. I should not be asking questions in the negative. Is it her special task? Yes. <laughs> yes, but the universe lets women who make art but don't make babies off the hook? Does the universe mind if women who don't make art choose not to make babies? Yes. Are these women punished? Yes. By not experiencing the mystery and joy? Yes. In any other way? Yes. By not passing on their genes? Yes. But I don't care about passing on my genes. Can't one pass on one's genes through art? Yes. Do men who don't procreate receive punishment from the universe? No. Do they receive punishment for neglecting other tasks one typically associates with maleness? No. Men escape all damnation and can do whatever they want? No. Perhaps their punishment comes not from the universe but from society? Yes. Does it take the form of ridicule? Yes. From women? No. From other men? Yes. And is their suffering as great as the suffering of these women at the hands of the universe? Yes. Well, I guess that seems fair. Yes. <laughs> Yesterday, Erica, whose baby is due any week now, sent me a painting by Bertha Morisot. She said, this painting reminds me of you. It's what I think you'd look like if you had a child. I wrote her back saying that the woman of the painting looked a little bored. But she replied saying that the woman was interested in her sleeping baby and felt I would be too. I'd interpret the woman's hand as having been placed on the edge of the bassinet kind of carelessly without a thought. But Erica said she felt the hand was laid over the edge of the crib tenderly and protectively. That does seem good, to lay your hand on reality to move away from the distortions of your mind and feel what actually is. This afternoon, I went to my doctor. She did a checkup and asked me questions about my life, including what sort of contraception Miles and I were using. I grew embarrassed admitting the truth, pulling out. It was what I'd use with almost every man. What if you get pregnant? Would you be okay with that? I tried to answer in an easy way, but soon my sentences got twisted up. After the appointment, I walked in the streets and called Teresa. I brought up my worries over paths not taken, and she said everyone had those, but often when you looked back on your life, you saw that the choices you made and the paths you went down were the right ones. She said it wasn't a matter of choosing one life over another, but being sensitive to the life that wants to be lived through you. You need tension in order to create something, the sand in the pearl. She said my questioning and doubts were the sand, 
She said they were good and forced me to live with integrity, to interrogate what was important to me, and so to live the meaning of my life rather than resort to convention. Then to try and discover and live my values, even if it may not seem like I'm moving forward in my life, while my friends appear to be moving forward in theirs, ticking off all the boxes. Ask only, when you, ask only whether you are living your values, not whether the boxes are ticked. After our call, I realized the thing I always do. I try to imagine different futures for myself, what I most would like to occur. I don't know why I do this when any of the things I've hoped for, whenever I've actually gotten them, are nothing like what I imagined they'd be. Then why don't I spend time acclimating myself to what actually occurred? Why not make peace with the way things are, given what I know about life from actually living? Instead, I spin fantasies, when the only happiness I've ever known has occurred without my design. Your idea about what your life is about, or should be like, occurs even before your life has had a chance to unfold. So much time that hasn't had the opportunity to present itself, you spend in efforts trying to make the space ahead fill in exactly the way you hope it might. So what is the point in having that time, of being in it at all? Why don't you just die when a sufficiently pleasing idea about what your life ought to look like materializes in your mind? The reason we don't just kill ourselves when we have figured out what we want our lives to look like is because we actually want to experience things. But what happens when the things we thought we wanted to experience don't occur? Or when something we didn't think we wanted to experience does? What's the point in living all that other stuff, the stuff we never wanted, the stuff we didn't choose? Since re life rarely accords to our expectations, why bother expecting anything at all? Wouldn't it be better not to plan ahead? But that seems crazy too, because planning and desiring sometimes works. Even if it doesn't work, it still gets us somewhere. Or at least it seems like if we didn't desire and plan, we'd be stuck in one place. It is often said that whether or not to have children is the biggest decision a person can make. That may be true, but it also doesn't mean anything. A decision happens in the private mind of one. It is not an action. For things to happen in a life, other people must participate. You have to will it. Many things have to collaborate. Life itself has to will it. A decision in the mind is pretty small. It doesn't make babies. If a decision in the mind doesn't make babies, why do I spend so much time thinking about it? We are judged by what happens to us as though our deciding made it happen. A lot of time is wasted in thinking about whether to have a child when the thinking is such a small part of it and when there is little enough time to think about the things that actually bring meaning, which are what? Nobody completely expected it to go the way it went, their life. Nobody's completely happy with the way things turned out for them but most people manage to find some pleasure in it anyway. A friend of mine who was dating a man quite early on in their fucking heard the sound and agreed to go ahead. She told him to come inside her. Then she got pregnant and she broke up with him, but they remained friends. She found a boyfriend who she wanted to raise the child with and the father takes the kid on weekends. They all love the boy and everything seems fine. What a way to live, to respond to the call and once that's done, make the practical decisions and make them well. I also heard the sound last August, deeply in my soul. I never wanted a child as much as I did that month. I remember sitting on the lakeside dock of my friend's mother's cottage, telling her of my desire, but not telling Miles, for he'd only started working a month before, and it didn't seem fair to bring it up with him then. The timing wasn't right. Nine months later, four of my friends gave birth. What was the sound we all heard that August? When I was younger, I told myself that if I was ever going to have a child, 
It would only happen if I accidentally became pregnant. Well, I did accidentally become pregnant, and I decided not to keep it. I was 21 at the time and switching to the birth control pill. The moment I discovered I was pregnant, I decided I would have an abortion. There was no gap between finding out and knowing what I wanted to do. The doctor who examined me advised me to keep the baby. He showed me the sonogram, even though I didn't want to see it. He told me it was too early to get an abortion. Because it was possible that I could miscarry, he said it would be wrong to do it now. He joked that I should have the baby and give it to him. He said I could come over to his house with bags of milk every week. It wasn't until I left his office that I realized what he meant, milk that would come from my breasts. I spent the days before my next appointment doing nothing but waiting for my abortion, smoking pot, eating candies and chocolate and chips, drinking and smoking too much, as if, in, as if to poison the little thing that was growing inside me that was making me nauseous all day. Only today as I'm writing this does it occur to me that he was lying. He wanted me to change my mind. You don't have to wait for an abortion. But I was too young then and too all alone to see it. Why are we still having children? Why was it important for that doctor that I did? A woman must have children because she must be occupied. When I think of all the people who want to forbid abortions, it seems it can only mean one thing. Not that they want this new person in the world, but that they want that woman to be doing the work of child rearing more than they want her to be doing anything else. There is something threatening about a woman who is not occupied with children. There is something at loose ends feeling about such a woman. What is she going to do instead? What sort of trouble will she make? Um, so one of the things that struck me about the book as I read it was just how fresh the premise was. Serious and sustained engagement with the question of whether or not to have children on a philosophical level. And as I read it, it increasingly seemed really strange to me that I had never read a book, or I think even an essay, um, addressing this subject before, this huge, life-changing decision that almost everyone, a vast majority of people, do end up making, but for reasons that are culturally never really discussed or, it seemed to me, explained. Um, I wondered if you felt when you were writing the book that you were writing into a void, that you were addressing some kind of lack, or maybe there were texts that were touchstones for you that I just wasn't familiar with. No, I didn't find any texts like that either. Um, and it did feel like I was writing into a void or a lack. And um, I don't really completely understand why I have my theories about why books, I haven't found any books like this, or as far as I can tell, books on the subject haven't been written. But the only thing I can say about that that feels truthful is that for me, the question, because it was a question of mine, of course, um, the question felt like a nuisance. and in some ways, like, I had the right to think about everything else that was going on in my life, but not the right to think about that. And it wasn't that the right to think about that was coming, was determined ex externally. But even to myself, I thought, this is so frivolous, this is so stupid. Think about more important things. Don't think about whether or not you want to have a child. And I kept pushing it to the side of my, it was sort of at the back of my mind, and I thought, it should not, it should not be at the back of my mind. It should not be in my mind at all. It should, and then I kind of realized at some point, no, actually, <laughs> That's the mistake. You have to like bring it to the front and center of your mind. And that felt like a great effort, and it felt very um, unnatural, or it felt very, uh, I felt guilty somehow about bringing it to the front of my mind when it seemed to me like there were so many more important things I should be thinking about. Now it seems to me like the most important thing you can think about, <laughs> especially at a certain age. What, what could be more important to think about than whether or not you're going to make somebody else live or not? You know, it, 
and the, and I'm not sure why we have this idea that it's it's a nuisance, it's a bug, it's a it's a, an irritation to more important things you can think about. Yeah, it seemed to me, and and increasingly seemed to me as I read the book that this was like one of the most profound philosophical questions. Like it, it touches on the the nature of existence itself. Like, is it right or wrong? both in general and for you personally, specifically for the narrator, um, to literally create another human life from scratch that has its own series of moral duties and demands attached to it. Um, so it's surprising that, I guess, to hear that you felt like that was trivial when you started. Why yeah. do you think that you had that sense? Because it's culturally considered trivial? Probably, and also just because if there's, there, I felt when I was writing is that there was no language to yeah. write this with. And so you feel like if there's no language, then there's no language for a good reason, that it's not worth language or something. Um, and so, yeah, I think it just felt like, it also felt trivial because who cares? At, at the beginning, I was like, who cares if one person has a child or not? You know, I, I, I didn't understand when I started that it mattered. But then, of course, it, it doesn't exactly matter whether one person has a child or not, but to be, but to, to but to, but it matters that we think about it as, as a whole, that, that we all think about it and not make it um, a subject that is beneath thought, you know? Absolutely, and I think it also touches on political issues. I mean, you, you've spoken in the piece that you read for us, um, obviously about reproductive rights and how they're tied into the discussion, but also that historically, I guess, when these philosophical debates that we consider central to the human experience were first formulated, um, the question of whether a woman would have children or not was irrelevant because women did not have a choice as to whether they had children or not. It wasn't necessarily something women were actually allowed to think about. And they there was were, no birth control. Right. They just went ahead yeah. and had to have children, basically, because of yeah. the way society was set up. So it seems like this now is, it's, it, even though it's dealing with questions that seem kind of timeless, it's an incredibly contemporary book because it could only happen now at this moment in history in a way. Yeah, I mean for birth control reasons and because society is such that there is slightly more permission to not have children or to not be married or to not be heterosexual, there's slightly more permission granted, um, not total permission, um, but yeah. And I think there has just been a breaking of taboos, perhaps because people are writing online um, anonymously and not so anonymously about their own lives so much. There's been taboos being bro broken about the experience of motherhood, that it's not this wondrous, amazing, beautiful thing only, that it's complicated. And so I don't think that I would have been able to write this book if people hadn't already been writing in that space of, of, of taking down motherhood from this sort of pedestal, this symbolic realm and bringing it into the, you know, down to earth. Uh -huh. So that's really interesting. So you were kind of writing into a space where the experience of motherhood has now become more complex and ambiguous and there's more cultural dialogue around it, that that almost opened a space for a discussion of non-motherhood. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Um, I, I want to ask about the coins. Um, we heard a lot of, from the coins in this, in this section. Um, so the, the first question I wanted to ask about the coins is that you um, tell us at the beginning of the book that the, the coins are real. So the book is built as a novel and yeah. the narrator, I think, is a, is a character. Um, you know, however much of your own philosophical thinking has gone into the book, I think, you know, um, it, is, it is a novel. Um, but it's important for you, obviously, to ground the coins in the real world that we all inhabit. Why did you think that you had to tell the reader that you hadn't made up the results of the coins? Um, well, I originally didn't have that note in the book. It was something that a friend who read the book, she asked me after she read the book, she said, so, so did you make up 
when did you make up the answers for the coins? And I was astonished. I was like, I, ne I never did. And she's like, well, did you sometimes change it to make it work out for you? And I was like, I, I never did. And it was so, I was aghast. <laughs> like, like, that's so not fun. Like, if you're using, like, that would be, like, it's like cheating at your own game. Like, where's the pleasure in that? Um, so I wanted to make that note at the beginning just to say, because I think there's something actually interesting in, interesting about knowing that because Weirdly, I don't know if you got this sense from the passage that I read, but weirdly the coins have a voice of their own. They have a character. They have an almost godlike um, authority. And, and there's a way in which your brain can't quite believe in it, in the fact that it's randomness. And I have, <laughs> I always can't stop thinking now about the, the relationship between God and randomness. Because if I had tried to write a vo the voice of God, I would have done such a worse job than <laughs> than just to throw coins and have it be random. So, to what degree is like are is randomness, which is basically chaos and meaningless, connected to the least chaotic, most meaningful um, idea, you know, of absolute order? The fact that they sound the same to us, the fact that the Old Testament God can be incarnated in the random throw of coins. At least to me, that's what that the voice of the coins sound like is. Is fascinating. Absolutely, and there's a section in in the book where the coins briefly, to, to my reader's eye, stop sounding godly and start kind of talking nonsense and giving what seemed to me really bad advice. Right. And, then, and I was like, how dare the coins? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it really, and, and, and the moment has worked beautifully because yeah. you do use that to sort of force the narrator and the reader to confront the fact that all this significance that you've invested in the, the cosmic um, wisdom of the coins yeah. was totally random. The coins were never, you know, saying yeah. anything. They were, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, and well, I'm just really interested in how you worked the coins into your writing process. Was it that when you reached a stop, you turned to the coins or the coins were built into how you went about writing the book? No, the coins were the first things I ever wrote. And I wrote that stuff in 2010, 11, 12, before I even thought that I would write a book about motherhood or oh. called motherhood. It was just writing I was doing for myself after I'd finished um, and published How Should a Person Be? And for those of you who don't know the book, it's a book that has a lot of dialogue in it, and it's a book that I wrote um, in conversation, literal conversation with friends of mine. And I think that I just like went into my study and I no longer had anyone to talk to. I was all alone again. Um, and I wasn't used to writing uh, in a soliloquy or monologue sort of way, because. I had been doing the exact opposite. And I think throwing the coins and writing was a way of bridging the gap between writing in dialogue with my friends and, and writing uh, what I, you know, soliloquy or monologue or first person philosophical things. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for a few years and then finally got tired of it. But I have, there's like 40,000 words of coin stuff. <laughs> Just like ridiculously <laughs> uninteresting, even more bizarre and meaningless coin stuff yeah <laughs> well it, it's and it, i mean the coins yeah they, they they throw up such beautiful insights obviously not because the coins themselves are invested with wisdom but because you can see the narrator thinking her way around the coins wanting the coins to be right and then coming up with better questions to ask right. the coins in order to allow the coins to be right and so there is that sense that randomness does become meaningful when we choose to make it meaningful. And yeah. there's, I mean, 
Dreams are also important in the book. There are tarot readings, there's psychic readings. And so all of these things in one sense might be said to be kind of random, but in another sense, they are really significant. And I'm just wondering as an author, how do you, how do you work those things? How do you use things like dreams and what sort of role do they play in your, in your writing? Well, um, for this book, the, the question that the narrator ha has cannot be answered. It's sort of an unanswerable question. Um, but uh, in a state of desperation, you look for clues to the unanswerable question everywhere. And so for me, dreams, I mean, his, humans have always looked to dreams to answer unanswerable questions. They've always looked to um, people who claim to know the spirit world or to know your future. Or I mean, there's charlatans everywhere that um, for good reason, we need them for storytelling. And some of them are better and some of them are worse, just the same way that some novelists are better and some novelists are worse. There are some very talented um, storytellers in those professions. Um, and so I think including all that stuff, everything that's said by somebody who has that kind of profession in the book is taken very seriously because it, the, the matter, it's a life or death kind of question. Mm -hmm. and, and you just like squeeze meaning out of everything you can possibly squeeze meaning out of mm -hmm. in that condition. That makes sense. And also because I guess the, the meaning is narrative, um, it also touches on the fact that the narrator is a, is a novelist and yeah. that wanting to make art is the other great drive that sort of balances itself out against this desire that she may or may not have to have children. And I think there's a sense that, you know, I don't know if you probably feel this too, wanting to be really careful about how, you know, not wanting to say it's not possible to be an artist and also have children, like just, you know, yeah. trying to negotiate that, yeah. but also respecting that there, there, is, there is some kind of fundamental relationship, even on the material level of like time. Yeah. Um, to actually, and money. Right, and money, yeah, yeah. To, devote, to, to devote your personal resources to, you know, a limited number of things. And so that's something that the narrator obviously has to kind of work through. And also there's a there's a sense that um, there's a scene where um, the narrator confronts the idea that she might never be a good enough writer if she doesn't undergo the experience of motherhood. That right. it's in some sense, it's a gateway into the universal or all human experience. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm just interested in how you negotiated that relationship between sort of parenthood on the one hand and then artistic endeavor on the other. Um, yeah, I didn't ever want to say that it was an either or because clearly many women who are mothers make great art. So it's, it's not an either or, but, but there are sacrifices. And I think anybody who says there aren't is deluding themselves. I mean, you know how much time it takes to write a book and how much concentration and how much aloneness and, uh, that's compromised even by having a relationship, let alone <laughs> having children to raise. So there's always sacrifices. Um, but, I I don't know. I I kind of feel like the voice of caution about that stuff in the book comes from the boyfriend mostly, um, because there is this hopefulness in the character that everything can be had in a life, and that the suspicion that maybe motherhood is such a profound experience that how can you possibly know about the world, and therefore how can you possibly write about the world if you don't experience it? And again, that doesn't make any sense because so many of our greatest female writers never had children. But I think there's just fears all around about um, wanting to live the, the most purposeful existence you can. And what does that mean? And, and what do you have to include in that? And what do you have to exclude from that? And 
Somebody was saying to me the other day that there's a there's an anxiety in the book about not living a mediocre life, and um, I'm sure you'll get to this, but I'll just tell the audience that um, the grandmother in the book, similarly to my grandmother, um, survived Auschwitz, and there's a feeling uh, for the narrator and for myself, and I think in many people whose whose ancestors barely survived a, a you know, something like that, that you can't just live in a, you have to do something with your life. You can't take it for granted. You can't, I had a boyfriend once who would sit around like drinking rum and cokes all the time and smoking pot and playing video games. And I was like, how can you live like that? And I've always had the feeling from when I was a small child, like you, you almost weren't here. And we all almost weren't here, but like the gratitude for being alive, the recognition of what people had to go through in order for you to be alive, and then to to, to waste it, um, to me, you know, culturally, if you make art or if you apply your mind to things in a serious way, that's not wasting it. I mean, everyone has their own idea of what waste is, but to me, wasting it would would be not using whatever capacities you're born with to the fullest, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it seems very... It seems very relaxing not to have that feeling with you accompanying you through life, but I don't know if I've ever had that. Yeah, and there's there's certainly, so there's a drive in the book to honor not only the narrator's grandmother, but also the narrator's mother. And I, I do I do want to talk about that. Um, but specifically that idea of figuring out how to honor the ancestors yeah. and feeling like the most culturally dominant way is just produce more yeah. yeah and allow the and allow the sort of genetic line to continue and that there's even a sort of political demand to do that in a sense you know I think there's a line in the book that's like if you know if the line doesn't continue the Nazis have won there's kind of like yeah. a there's a deep political drive to continue um but that there is also another way of honoring the ancestors that it's not turning away from that demand but finding an alternative way to fulfill it I think yeah yeah, and in the case of the book, it's the um, sort of curing the mother's deep sadness, and even though the grandmother is dead, sort of curing her sadness, and this idea of the soul being not something that's contained in you know our individual bodies, but is connected to the people around us. So if you sort of like, um, if you tend to the what you consider your soul, to use that word, that it can also tend to the, the, the shared soul that, um, that is shared with your mother, with your, with your ancestors that you inherited. So there's a way of mothering the mother um, or mothering the grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's, that's in some ways a solution to this problem of, of what do you do for the mother? What do you do for the grandmother? Since they have done so much for you. And that's touching on the idea of the soul of time, which is sort of a central concept in the book. And the coins actually at one point tell the narrator to call the book the soul of time. And then, (laughs) and then the narrator disobeys and calls the book motherhood. And, and it's interesting because at some points I almost felt the concepts were becoming interchangeable. That, that motherhood no longer just referred to the state of mothering, but also the state of being mothered. That there was some kind of cosmic cycle and that that was the soul of time. (laughs) Yeah. That, that sort of, um, I was just really interested in how time was expressed through that sort of cycle, through the menstrual cycle in the book and also through the cycle of mothering and, and, and being a daughter and, yeah. 
Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, it's complicated. I haven't really figured it out like as a way of talking about it, but I hope to demonstrate it in the book, that idea of, of time that I, that I feel. And just this also this idea of like, that we are the flesh of time. And so in some ways, that's a less egoistic or individualistic way of looking at your life. If, if your life is an expression of t time's soul, um, then your duties aren't necessarily only to your own immediate needs, but to stories that haven't come to an end that perhaps come from the past. And that can only be resolved in time. And it can only be resolved through time. And even the question of having a child, there's a point in the book where I write that it's um, the desire is to keep writing this book until there's no longer a biological possibility of having mm -hmm. a child. So to use the book as kind of a prophylactic yeah. um, against, against uh, maternity. Um, so th that's another way that I wanted time to sort of work in the book as I wanted while reading the book, the person, the reader to feel time passing and um, time running out, you know, and, and time deliberately running, you know, the deliberate desire for time to run out. Yeah. And the, the, that wonderful description of the book being like a kind of raft to get you to the other shore that you arrive along with the passage of the book to a point where the decision has been made. Even yeah. if, yeah, even if not consciously, time has made the decision. Yeah. Um, yeah, the role of, of time in the book is, is so fascinating. And um, I also want to ask about the two sort of, what I see to be the two sort of central relationships in the book. And mm -hmm. um, so the book portrays lots of intimate friendships and relationships in really beautiful detail, some of which we heard actually in your reading, but, um, but there are two in particular that I wanted to talk about. So one is the narrator's relationship with her partner, Miles. So he says that he's willing to have a child with the narrator, but she has to be sure. And of course, she isn't sure, so that's no help. Um, the, <laughs> the love between Miles and the narrator um, of the book, for me, was very real and very palpable. But the narrator's sense of being utterly alone with the decision in front of her was also very real. And mm -hmm. um, was it important for the book that the narrator had to confront this decision without help from Miles? And at times, it even felt like Miles was stymieing her <laughs> in the decision-making process. That sense of being very loved and, and that the relationship was so present, but that aloneness was also important in some way for the decision-making. Yeah, I think that when he says, the decision is yours, but you have to be sure, it's nice to be given that responsibility, and it's also horrible, <laughs> you know? And it also, also seems to me that um, the person, um, if, if you're having a child in the context of a couple, the person who wins, whether the child, whether there is a child or not, is the one who has stronger feeling about it. So if one person's neutral and the other person really desperately wants a child, there tends to be a child. If one person's neutral and the other person desperately doesn't, there tends not to be. And, and in, in a sense, she's making this decision as though she has no partner, you know, because of that both generous and complicated offering. Mm -hmm. But her aloneness in that, I think, is, is similar to the sort of aloneness of the writer. That, I yeah. mean, obviously, she is a writer. Yeah. That there's something, it's, it's almost about the hard limits of what relationships can do. There are some places that they cannot go. There is a kind yeah. of stop, and then after that, the narrator has to be completely alone in her art and in her decision making. Yeah, and I mean, the decision whether to have a child, like it's it's literally like, well, not life or death, but life or not life. Mm -hmm. and, and in some ways, it, it makes sense for, 
for the narrator to have to make that decision alone the same way you die alone, the same way you're born alone. Do you make someone be born alone? Like it, it makes sense if, if the book is a philosophical novel on some level for that to be contended with alone. Yeah. Um, and the other central relationship in the book is between the narrator and her mother, which we mm -hmm. spoke about briefly. Um, and for me, it's one of the really touching and really beautiful aspects of, of the book. Um, so the narrator's mother struggles with a very profound unhappiness, and then so does the narrator. And there's a sense that these sadnesses are, are connected, not only in a sort of psychological sense, one character having raised the other, but in an almost cosmic sense, like soul of time kind of sense. Um, did you know when you started writing the book, I'm curious, how central the figure of the narrator's mother would become, that she would be in a way sort of the key to solving the motherhood problem? Or did she kind of gradually begin to emerge as you attacked the, the question of the novel? I mean, I knew from very, very early on that the, the mother would be a character and that the mother's sadness would be um, the reason, in some senses, that the book was written. Um, early on, there's a chapter that talks about uh, that's where the narrator says something to the effect of, I, I, after, after I finish writing this book, neither one of us will ever cry again. So the, the intent of the book is to solve the mother's tears. I had no idea where it was going to go from there. I didn't know whether, um, in what, what, what shape the mother would be by the end of the book or in what shape their relationship would be by the end of the book. But I, that was one of the motivations in writing the book was to have the, have the mother's sadness be central to it. And it's interesting, I mean, I think so many people have, have mothers who have a version of a sadness, whether it comes from uh, not living the life that she wanted to live or, you know, you know spousal abuse or, you know, sort of generational trauma. Um, there's always some kind of sadness that the child can see in her mother. And there's a, there's a deep sense, certainly when this narrator is a child, that it's kind of her fault that she yeah. has, she has given her, she, she says something like, why was I born to cause my mother this pain? Yeah. Um, so there's a sense that she's, that the sadnesses are connected in that very deep way because she feels that by her existence, she has caused her mother's sadness, which obviously causes sadness for her. Um, and there's, a very, I think, very beautiful moment where, um, as adults, the narrator and her mother meet and speak about motherhood, and her mother says that, you know, motherhood was not the most important thing in her life. Um, and in a, in another, in a, you know, in a different context, that could seem like a very sad scene or even a bleak scene, but in fact, it's a, a moment of total honesty and understanding between them, it seems to me. Yeah, I feel that. That is exactly what the scene is, and and the, the 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 reason that the child feels that she caused her mother pain is because of the narcissism of the child. You know, it's just this feeling of like whatever is going on in your family, it's your, you somehow are the center. I mean, um, uh, and and you've caused all these effects, um, so that's wrong. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, it's interesting because the there's another point in the book where there's a, a feeling of like, how do you become a mother? Well, perhaps what a mother, the way you become a mother is you do what your mother did, you know. And if your mother mothered, then the way you become a mother is by mothering. But in the case of of this narrator, her mother uh, uh, works. She's a doctor. She's very dedicated to her work. Is always in her room with her pens and books. And and the narrator looks and says, well, if if that's what a mother is to me, somebody who sits alone and works, then am I imitating my mother sitting alone working with my pens and books? Am I 
a mother now, you know, so. Um, I'm curious, because of the book's very unusual shape and structure, um, how did you know that the book was finished, when it was finished? And how did you go about organizing it? Because from what you say about the coins, it seems like it didn't happen in a linear way. It wasn't yeah, as if you sat no. down and wrote it from start to finish. No. Um, the organizing was um, the main bulk of the work. The writing came quite easily, and then the organizing, I probably edited for about two years or oh. so. And it was just um, uh, trying to find a shape, trying to, trying to organize the notes um, and the passages in a way that, that moved from the kind of thoughts that you would have at the beginning of this process to the kind of thoughts you would have at the end. So, so the, the more simplistic, um, sort of culturally um, infused ideas would be at the beginning and the more personal, complex uh, thoughts would be at the end. And then there's also this structure in the book that, um, in the middle of the book where the chapters follow the phases of the menstrual cycle. So there's this, um, there was an ordering in that sense of where the more optimistic and bright and hopeful and sexual passages would come during the chapters called ovulation and then the ones where the narrator hates her boyfriend and wants to leave her life come in the PMS chapter as you must have guessed by now. Um, and this is the more pessimistic thoughts about what a motherhood would mean. So I, I, cause I, I felt like, um, what is the honest narrative that we live as women? Um, and I think that is the narrative of, uh, for those of us who pay attention and, and who have a horm hormone such that you experience the, the phases of the menstrual cycle. It's not your life, uh, rising, you know, what they say with, uh, with movies or, uh, you know, rising tension and then climax and then denouement. In fact, it's, it's a cycle of, 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 greater sense of wholeness and peace and, and, and joy and then, and then the descent, and then this descent into darkness and then once again this rising up out of that darkness and then this, this descent and that goes on monthly for, you know, 20 years or however many, 30 years. Um, and I was like, well, that's kind of the narrative you live. And then what does that mean for making a decision? Because if you're constantly seeing the world quite rapidly through these various different filters of, of greater optimism, greater pessimism, which one is right? And how do, how would you ac actually make a decision when you have such, when you see through so many um, conflicting lenses? So I was like, well, I, so I, that was another way that I tried to structure the book. Um, and it works beautifully, I think. Um, we may have time for some audience questions. Um, it's sort of about, I think it's negotiating the cultural tension between um, the stereotype of women as being unable to handle their hormones, but also wanting to be honest about the actual experience of suffering PMS yeah. and, and feeling that hormones are very important to your experience of life. Um, I recognize that that could be uh, an un unintended consequence of, of, um, of having a narrative with chapters ovulation and PMS and follicular and whatever, luteal phase. But I don't, I, I ultimately just thought, well, that's my experience. And it, it doesn't, it can be interpreted as, well, here, here's a woman who, who's too changeable. Women can't hold office. That's not my fault. Like, that's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to, to write it as I feel life to be. And, and, um, I, that's it. Um, how do you mean personal does level? Uh, yeah, it's stressful. It's stressful to start noticing those things, but it's also stressful not to notice. It's worse not to know. It's not, it's worse, it's worse. I mean, everyone, every woman should track her 
menstrual cycle because there's a lot of information in it. And I feel like every single breakup I've ever had was when I had PMS. And if I look back, I think like, if only I'd known, I could have saved some good relationships. You know, it's better to have knowledge about your body than to ignore it. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, I felt crazier when I wasn't aware of my hormones effect on me than I feel now. Yeah. A friend of mine, um, uh, he wrote me a text and he said, uh, my girlfriend, Alex, and her friends, because the book came out in Canada um, May 1st, he said they're reading the book and they've all decided to go off the pill so that they can feel their cycles. And I was like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to like, the la you know, make more babies. Or just, I don't know. But, and it was interesting to me because I said, well, don't I make it seem bad? You know, don't I make it seem hard? to experience those and he said yeah but but there's something affirming and even if it's hard it's your body and and the desire is to feel that so that made me both yeah happy and scared <laughs> um so i was reading uh I ordered all these like very intellectual books about motherhood, like motherhood and patriarchy. <laughs> all these wonderful books that came to my door and stayed you know, on my desk unread. And instead I read the comments of Daily Mail articles. <laughs> um, because I think that I wanted to actually situate myself in, um, in the every woman's experience culturally of being a woman rather than in the ivory tower version that I I'm very, I could very easily also inhabit. I wanted the thoughts in my head to be the thoughts that, that we all have to contend with. Um, so I would read these comment sections. There was like an article in the Daily Mail by a woman who, um, um, who said that she regretted having her children. And you've read that one. <laughs> I can see you nodding. Um, and there was a photograph of her with her grown child or children. And, uh, and she was just basically like, it wasn't for me. You know, I love my children, but I shouldn't have done it. I like peace and quiet, and I like to be alone, and it was the wrong decision. And it was, I thought, a very reasonable article. I was the only one who thought so. <laughs> um, and so when I, so I, I just like obsessively read 3,600, you know, 64 comments, um, you know, with all the ups and downs. And, um, and I was going to have a character in the book called Troll, <laughs> um, and who would say, you know, things like, uh, career women like you, you know, are destined to end up loveless and alone. And as you might imagine, the comments, um, uh, things like that. And, uh, this is, th well, sure, this is nature's way of, of getting you out of, uh, the whatever. You're getting your DNA out because you're defective. I mean, all those kinds of things. And then I finally was like, uh, not finally, it was, it was only probably six months that I thought that was going to be it. And I was like, well, you know, I don't really need to put that in my book. I think we all know that that those opinions are out there and it doesn't belong in the book. But, but I wanted those close to me and on my computer so I knew what I was writing against. Um, not only that there are people outside of oneself that think that, but there is a part of oneself that also thinks that at certain moments, you know, I'm defective. I'm, you know, I'm going to end up loveless and alone. Well, if the only person that you can convince to be around you when you're old is your child, then that's a very sorry, <laughs> you've lived a very sorry life. Um, yeah. Yeah, and um, there's a character, the Miles character, the boyfriend character in the book has a child from a previous relationship who um is a is a small smaller rather than larger part of the of the life of the couple. 
And there's a beautiful moment in the book between the, where the narrator is, is with the child and, um, it's quite, it's quite a beautiful moment. And the, the, the beauty of motherhood is, is, I mean, I, I think the beauty of motherhood is undeniable and it's not, it's not, a, it's not a fiction. There's, and I think that the book would be a lie if it, if it excluded any kind of feelings of, um, of sadness or not feeling that, or not even sadness, but recognition that that is a beautiful thing to feel. So I, I feel like I just wanted to put that in because, because that is part of human life. And, and you can experience those motherhood feelings even if you're not a biological mother. You know, there's, there's ways of relating to children that are um, deep and beautiful and it doesn't have to be your own, you don't have to, raise them to have those feelings, you know? Um, so the question is, could you say a little bit more about what you're saying about yes and no and then the wrong question? Um, I think if you're like, if you have a debate in your mind and you can't decide, you know, and you're like, do I do A or do I do B? And you just keep going back and forth. There's, the problem is not, is going to be, the answer is not going to be A or B. The answer is going to be something else. Because clearly there's something wrong about A and something wrong about B, or there's something wrong with the question, or there's something wrong with thinking only that there's only the right or the left. You know, there has to, the answer will come outside of that. Um, uh, well, you're, you're a philosopher, how would you put it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's about dialectic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I mean, it is. It's, it's very, and, and it's interesting that that's mimicked in the coins too. All the coins can say is yes or no. So right. in a way, they're replicating that fundamental problem, which is that that's not right. enough to solve the problem that the narrator is grappling with. Yeah, and if, if the question is, do I have a child, and you think, well, yes doesn't sound right, and no doesn't sound right, then you have to, you've got to dig harder. Because because then yes and no, that's not really the problem. The problem is not whether to have a child or not. The problem is some relationship to your own self, or the universe, or your mother, or your understanding of your purpose, or your understanding of the purpose of woman. Like there's There's actually a bigger problem to answer than this, do I have a child or not? That's the, the most superficial clue that there's a problem with your own existential relationship to life. Um, yeah. Oh, so non-rational forms of knowledge, like we see in, I guess, the tarot sequences and the dream sequences. How, I mean, yeah, that. <laughs> do you, do you have any <laughs> how do you use that? that or how do you approach that? I mean, what's a non-rational form of knowledge? Like, is storytelling a non-rational form of knowledge? Um, is is spirituality, is God, are those ideas, is the idea of the soul, are those non-rational forms of knowledge? Like, I don't know what a rational form of knowledge, uh, apart from, let's say, scientific knowledge you could have about your own life and body and decisions. It would seem to be that it's all, it would all have to be non-rational. No one's ever lived your life before, and you've never lived it before, and the future is unknown, and, and there isn't, there's, if you think you're acting rationally, you're probably just trying to justify some inchoate <laughs> desire to yourself and make excuses. I don't know. Life has seemed to me like a series of um, happy accidents and unhappy accidents, you know, all the while me thinking that I was acting rationally. So I don't know if I, I don't know if, if there's anything worse about turning to actually non-rational forms for help. I think that you mentioned that you were thinking about new projects. Are you working on a, a new book? Um, 
I have a book that I was working on for the whole entire time that I was working on this book. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, and I actually met today with uh, Jacques Testard of Fitzcarraldo, and it looks like we're going to publish it in fall 2019. Incredible. And it's called Canals. And um, it's basically 10 years of diaries um, in alphabetical order. So <laughs> um, it reads like a, so, you know, the first chapter is like A, and then, you know, and, and all the sentences like, and then the chapter, how do I put it? Like each sentence is alphabetized. So, you know, uh, um, the chapter I is all the sentences that start with, uh, you know, I, I wish I had done this, I, I wish I had done this, I wish I did this. And the, the point of writing this book for me originally was to take these diaries and to see, I wanted to understand better my own mind's repetitions over 10 years, and I wanted to understand better, um, well, what kind of themes do I constantly come back to? Has there been any change over 10 years? Is it there only the illusion of change, or am I actually like stuck in one place? And and then by alphabetizing the the sentences and breaking them apart and taking and making the narrative in alphabetical form, um, I was able to see uh, sort of pseudo scientifically um, <laughs> um, where the mind returns to. Um, so yeah, that's going to be about. That's going to be the next book, I think. Wow, well, yeah. I cannot wait to read it. That sounds incredible. And um, so thank you all for being here with us this evening. And thank you so much, Sheila. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.